and let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32 this morning, and let's read from verse 1. It says, And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's host. And he called the name of that place Maha-Naim. And let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. To the Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can be gathered together in this place. We thank you that we can come and spend some time around your word this morning. Lord, I pray that as we consider this passage now, that, Lord, you would empower me through the Spirit. You give me wisdom and guidance to speak, that it would be your words this morning, your thoughts, that, Lord, you would take your word and apply it to each of our hearts, that we would be refreshed, blessed and challenged by your word this morning, and that, Lord, we would leave singing your praises and giving all glory to your name. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, um, last Sunday, if you remember, at the end of chapter 31, we saw uh, Jacob conclude his confrontation there with Laban. And so as chapter 32 begins, Jacob has just come from that confrontation, that difficult situation that he faced. And, of course, it had concluded with Uh, Jacob and Laban agreeing a covenant together. And we talked about the fact that Jacob was the real peacemaker there. He was the one who forgave his uncle, uh, despite the fact that Laban never apologized. He never admitted his wrong. Jacob still forgave him. He sought peace. And they made this covenant, this agreement together. And the chapter, of course, if you remember, it ended with uh, Jacob offering sacrifices unto the Lord and rejoicing. Uh, in God's goodness to him. Just go back there, chapter 31 and verse 54. It says, Then Jacob offered sacrifice upon the mount and called his brethren to eat, and they did eat and tarried all night in the mount. And so we saw that Jacob, you know, at the end of that, he, he sacrificed unto the Lord. He worships God. He gives thanks to God for what God has done, acknowledging that it's God who delivered him from Laban, and he gives thanks to God that now they can continue on into the land in peace. Uh, with Laban. But you know, no sooner has this confrontation ended, this trial ended, and another is immediately on the horizon. You know, one commentator wrote this, many are the troubles of the righteous in this world, and sometimes the end of one is but the beginning of another. The clouds return after the rain. And that's certainly the case here for Jacob. Now, he's just come through this confrontation with his uncle, He's seen God work in a wonderful way. He's seen there's a peace agreement in place. And now before anything else, there's now potentially another problem. There's potentially an even greater problem. And that is his brother Esau. Now when Jacob left 20 years earlier, Esau desired to kill him. That was the last time he saw him. Esau wanted him dead. And of course, you know, this was part of the reason that he had left in haste. Just go back to chapter 27. Let's just refresh our minds. Chapter 27 and verse 41. It says, And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. 
And Esau said in his heart, The days of mourning for my father are at a hand. Then will I slay my brother Jacob. And these words of Esau, her elder son, were told Rebekah. And she sent and called Jacob her younger son, and said unto him, Behold, thy brother Esau, as touching thee, doth comfort himself, proposing to kill thee. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, and arise, flee thou to Laban, my brother to Haran. And so part of the reason he left with such haste was because of Esau's hatred of him, Esau's desire to put him to death, to murder him. You know, Esau, of course, believed that Jacob had robbed him of what was rightfully his, even though, as we, we saw, he despised his birthright and God rejected him. <clears throat> he couldn't blame Jacob. You know, he had despised it, he had rejected uh, his birthright, and God had rejected him because of his worldly attitude. But he did blame Jacob. He wanted him dead. And now as Jacob makes his way back through the, the mountains of Gilead there and makes his way back into the land of Canaan, he couldn't be sure how he was going to be received by Esau. You see, his mother had told him that she would send word when Esau's anger was cooled, you know, when his attitude changed. But as far as the biblical record goes, he never received word from his mother. There's no record of him ever hearing from his mother that Esau's attitude has changed. And so as he approaches, there is considerable apprehension. He is concerned as to how Esau is going to receive him. There is a very real possibility that he is going to face a hostile reception from his brother. And with that in mind, we see recorded for us now this morning the events that lead up to their meeting after all these years. And the account begins here with the appearance of the angels of God. That's our first point here this morning. We see the angels of God. Verse 1, it says, And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's host. And he called the name of that place Mahanim. We see the angels of God. As Jacob continues now on his journey into the land of Canaan, he is met by the angels of God. You know, once again, what we see here is we see God's perfect timing. Do we not? God's perfect timing in this meeting. You see, God knew that Jacob needed some encouragement for what lay ahead, some reminder that he was with him. Now, God knew Jacob was apprehensive about what was going to happen. And so God, in his loving grace here, he arranges this meeting. Now, Jacob had once before seen the angels of God, and that was, of course, in his dream at Bethel. Let's go back to Genesis 28 quickly. Genesis 28 and verse 12 says, And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God descending, uh, ascending, sorry, and descending on it. So he'd seen the angels once before, okay, at Bethel. He'd seen this uh, vision, okay, as he dreamed. He saw the angels ascending and descending upon this, this great ladder coming down to the earth and going back up. And this dream that he had received, of course, was at the very beginning of his journey, wasn't it? Okay, it was at the very beginning of his journey as he's leaving Canaan and he's heading towards Haran. God gave him this vision. And, we, and when we looked at that passage, we spoke about God's wonderful timing. You know, the encouragement that that vision must have given him as he went forward. 
Help him understand that God was indeed actively interested in his life. God was working. And God said he was going to be with him as he departed Canaan and as he went to Haran. And now as Jacob returns to the land, he once more sees the angels of God. It's not coincidence, is it? Is it? This, is, this is God's perfect timing. Okay? God knows what he's doing. God knows that Jacob needs this. He needed this meeting. Just as he needed it when he left Canaan, he needs it now again as he arrives in Canaan. You see, humanly speaking, Jacob was helpless if Esau wanted to attack him. Humanly speaking, he was vulnerable. You know, he only had his servants with him. That's all he had to fight back, to defend himself. He was vulnerable. Now, the commentator Morris writes this. Laban's band could have easily destroyed them apart from God, and he had every reason to think that Esau, likewise, would have by this time a much larger body of fighting men than he did. Consequently, Jacob had to depend solely on the Lord. I mean, he's just seen God deal with Laban's band, and now as he approaches Esau, he is uh, aware of the fact that Esau is probably going to have men with him. And he is vulnerable. Humanly speaking, he is helpless to defend himself. But God here reveals a wonderful truth to Jacob, doesn't he? Or reminds him of a wonderful truth, if you like. God reveals to him that there is ample protection all around him. He has the army of the Lord. In verse 2, Jacob says this, And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's host. This is his response. When Jacob sees the angels of God, what does he say? He says, This is God's host. In other words, this is the army of the Lord. This is God's army. That's what he declares here. You see, he recognizes the significance of this, uh, this event, doesn't he? He recognizes the significance of seeing the hosts of God, this host of angels. Jacob understood that God was making it clear to him that he would be fighting for him. He would be fighting on his side. You see, even though Jacob couldn't always see them, God's angels were always there, weren't they? And they were always guarding and protecting him. They were carrying out God's instructions. And we see that Jacob understood this truth as he names the place here. At the end of verse 2 it says, And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And that name means two hosts. It's basically Jacob acknowledging this very truth. He says there's two hosts here. There's my host and there's God's host. He understands what this, this meeting means. He says God's here. God's host is here as well. We are not alone. And it seems clear from verse 1 and 2 that Jacob alone sees the angels of the Lord. This is for his eyes only, if you like, isn't it? This is a personal experience from the Lord to encourage and strengthen him as he leads his family forward. The Lord opened his eyes so that he might see what was normally invisible. You know, there's another occasion of the Word of God where we see something similar taking place, isn't there? In 2 Kings chapter 6, let's quickly turn over there. I'm sure we know this story, we know this passage well. 2 Kings chapter 6. <clears throat> 2 Kings 6 and verse 16. It says, And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us 
are more than they that be with them. And Elijah prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Now we have this wonderful story here of Elisha and his servant, and they are allowed to see the mighty host of the Lord God opens their eyes. You know, they face seemingly overwhelming odds, an impossible situation. And the Lord encouraged them by opening their eyes to see what was the reality, that God was there and that his host outnumbered the enemy. The army of the Lord was on their side. And, and this is what God reveals to Jacob here. As Jacob sees the angels of God, as he sees the host of God, the army of God, he sees and understands the reality that they were not alone. And the Lord was on their side. And you know, today as believers, even though we cannot see the angels of the Lord, the Word of God makes it clear that they are constantly working on our behalf. They are carrying out the commands of our Lord. Psalm 34 verse 7 speaks about angels being encamped around those that fear Him. Let's just turn over there, Psalm 34. Read a couple of wonderful verses in Psalms, but start in Psalm 34. Psalm 34 verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Psalm 34 makes it clear that the angel of the Lord encamps around them that fear him, his people, delivering them. And that was certainly true for Jacob here, wasn't it? Jacob and his camp. Now Jacob understands this truth. He didn't already. He understands that God is encamped round about the angels of the Lord. Jacob understood this truth and it is a, a truth that it's a reality for each of us as his children. You see, God in his loving care is watching over us, protecting us. And his angels are part of that care. In Psalm 91, just turn over there, Psalm 91 verse 11. <clears throat> it speaks about God giving his angels charge to care for us. Psalm 91 verse 11 it says, For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Gives his angels charge to keep us, to protect us, watching over us, to care for us as his people. In the New Testament, in Hebrews 1 verse 14, it speaks about them being ministering servants. Ministering spirits, just turn over there, Hebrews 1. <clears throat> Hebrews 1 verse 14, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Hebrews 1 verse 14 says they're ministering spirits and they minister to who? Those who are the heir of salvation, believers. You see, the point is that even though we can't see the host of the Lord, the host of the Lord is there. And it is part of His loving care of us as His children. He's given them charge to watch over us, to carry out His commands in ministering to us and on our behalf. I read a wonderful account this this week of this very truth. The, the story goes like this. John Patton, a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, told of how one night hostile natives surrounded his mission's headquarters, intent on driving the Pattons out of their home 
and killing them. He and his wife prayed through the night, and when daylight finally came, their attackers were gone. A year later, the chief of the tribe became a Christian, and Patton asked the man about that night. The chief replied, who were all those men you had with you there? The missionary explained, only he and his wife were there. The chief insisted he had seen hundreds of big men with shining garments and swords circling the mission headquarters. So the natives were afraid to attack. That night in the New Hebrides Islands, there was certainly a double camp, a group of angels to help and serve the missionary family. And that's just a modern day example of this wonderful truth. A truth that, yes, we can't always see, but it's a reality. You know, only when we get to glory will we find out the true extent of their ministry for us. You see, knowing this truth ought to give us courage, ought to comfort us as we seek to serve the Lord. It should, to, it should encourage us, it should strengthen us. Knowing this truth, even though we can't see it, knowing it is a reality. And that brings us now to our second point. We see now the delegation. After this wonderful meeting with these angels being reminded of this truth, we see Jacob now sends forth a delegation. Let's look in verse 3. It says, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall you speak unto my lord Esau, Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. And I have oxen and asses, flocks and men servants and women servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I might find grace in thy sight. As I said, after this wonderful meeting, this wonderful reminder that God is watching over and protecting him. Jacob now prepares to meet with his brother. And he learned that his brother Esau was dwelling at this time in the region that's south of the Dead Sea. Okay, it's referred to here as the, the land of Seir. Okay, in verse 3 it says, And Jacob sent messages before him to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Okay, so this is the region south of the Dead Sea. And so he sends these, these servants on ahead. Okay, they're, they're a delegation going on ahead to, to inform his brother of his intentions. In verse 4 and 5, we read the instructions that are given to this delegation. Let's just read it again. It says in verse 4, And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall you speak unto my lord Esau. Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban, and stayed there until now. And I have oxen and asses, flocks, and men servants, and women servants. And I have sent to tell my lord that I might find grace in thy sight. He gives instructions to his servants. <clears throat> telling them exactly what to say. And he starts out by telling them to address Esau as Lord. He says, address Esau as Lord, and he says, and refer to me as his servant. Okay, notice that in verse 4. Thus shall you speak unto my Lord Esau, thy servant Jacob, saith thus. So he refers to Esau as being Lord, and he says, and I'm your servant. That's his words that he's putting in the mouth of his servants here. And in this we see yet again Jacob's humility, don't we? We see his humility. We see yet again Jacob's meekness. And we see him yet again seeking to be a peacemaker, don't we? You see, once again, what's he, what he, what's he doing here? He's seeking peace with his brother. 
And he seeks to go about it with this humble approach. He's approaching him humbly, seeking to make peace. We need to remember that Esau's hatred of Jacob stemmed in a large part from the fact that Jacob had been given the blessing. Okay, and he believed that Jacob had gotten political advantage over him when he received that blessing from their father. Just go back to chapter 27. <clears throat> Chapter 27 and verse 38. <clears throat> Chapter 27 verse 38 says, And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing? My father blessed me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac his father answered and said unto him, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth, and the dew of heaven from above, and by thy sword shalt thou live, and, thou sh and shalt serve thy brother. And it shall come to pass that when thou shalt have the dominion, that thou shalt break off his yoke from off thy neck. And Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. See, large part of this hatred stemmed from the blessing that Esau had gotten, the, the one that his father had given to him. Sorry, that Jacob had gotten, the one that his father had given to him. See, he hated the fact that Jacob had received the political advantage over him. But his father had declared that he would serve his brother. He hated that. And so Jacob here, as he approaches his brother, he acts wisely, doesn't he? He wisely here calls his brother Lord. And he says, and I'm your servant. You see, Jacob here is emphasizing that he's not coming back to exercise any political advantage over Esau. He's not coming back to seek to subdue Esau or to put Esau in his place. Jacob says, I'm not coming for those reasons. I'm coming peacefully and respectfully. And not only that, he also goes on to assure Esau that he, he's not coming to take anything from him either, is he? That's why in verses 4 and 5, he tells his servants to tell him about the sojourn with Laban and how he has oxen and asses, flocks and men servants and women servants. He's saying, tell Laban about God's blessing, of, sorry, Esau, about God's blessing upon my life so that Esau understands I don't need anything from him and I don't want anything from him. You see, he says to Esau, I have plenty of my own. I have no need to take anything from you. And Jacob then, he concludes his message to his brother with the words, I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find grace in thy sight. Jacob makes it clear to Esau that he wants peace. He says, I want peace. All he wanted was to find grace, was to find favor in his sights. On this phrase, find grace in thy sight, the commentator Gill writes, share in his goodwill, which was all he wanted, and that friendship, harmony, and brotherly love might subsist between them, which he was very desirous of. So that's the point. That's what this whole idea of fine grace means. He just wanted to have a brotherly relationship with him. He wanted peace. He wanted to have that friendship, that harmony that should exist between brothers. Jacob wanted reconciliation. And so he sends this message in humility, seeking to make that happen. It's no surprise, therefore, that when Jacob's servants return with what seems to be bad news that Jacob is afraid and distressed. Look at verse 6. It says, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We have come to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee, and four hundred men with him. 
Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. The servants returned with the distressing news that Esau's already on his way. And Esau, he's coming with an army. He's coming with 400 men. It appears that Esau, he'd already learnt that Jacob was on his way. He'd already learnt that Jacob was coming back into Canaan. And so he himself had set out to meet Jacob. And he doesn't know Jacob's intentions either, does he? And so he's gathered 400 men in preparation to defend his interests against his brother. Morris writes this, For all he knew, Jacob might be coming with a large body of fighting men to claim his promised boundaries and possessions and to subjugate Esau. When he, saw, sorry, when he learned of Jacob's approach toward Canaan, he therefore assembled an army of his own and marched forward to meet Jacob, prepared for whatever eventuality might come. And so he's already on his way. He's on his way to defend his interests. It's because he's already on his way to meet with Jacob that the servants return much sooner than what Jacob expected. They come back very quickly. And they inform him of Esau's close proximity. That's what it says there in verse 6. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee with 400 men with him. The idea is he's he's on his way. He's, He's going to be here soon. He's coming. And Jacob, upon hearing this, he naturally jumps to the conclusion that Esau still wants to do him harm. That Esau still intends to kill him and we can sympathize and we can understand his response, can't we? In verse 7 it says, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. We can understand that response, can't we? As I was reading this week, reading commentators and reading what people say on this, a lot are very critical of Jacob here. Very critical. Now, after all, Jacob had just seen the army of the Lord. Has he already forgotten this this meeting and forgotten the significance of it? Where's his faith? But I think if we're honest, that we can all identify with Jacob here, can't we? You see, we know the truth that God is with us. We know that truth. We know God's word. We, We know that God is watching over us, that God is protecting us, just like Jacob did. And yet so often when we are faced with circumstances that seem hopeless, that seem beyond our control, what's our first initial response? Fear and distress. If we're honest, we all can identify exactly with Jacob here. We know the truth, but we're still human, aren't we? And we still have these responses. You see, what is important is how we respond after that initial reaction. It's what we do with that or do after that that matters. You know, Psalm 56 and verse 3 gives us the answer. It says, What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. That's the answer, isn't it? When we're afraid, we turn to the Lord. You see, there are going to be times when we will be afraid. But in those times, we need to boldly then trust in our Lord. We need to remind ourselves of His promises. Remind ourselves that He is on our side that he is in control, and then with faith, commit ourselves and commit the problem into his loving care. And that's what we see Jacob here now do. And that brings us to our final point this morning. We see the response from Jacob. The response, look in verse 7 again. It says, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that was with him, and the flocks and herds and the camels into two bands, and said, If Esau come to the one company and smite it, Then the other company which is left shall escape. 
And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all thy the mercies, and of all the truth which thou showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, and from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidst, I will surely uh, do thee good, and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. We see Jacob's response. You know, he has this initial reaction of fear and distress. But the response now is not one of fear. The response is not him trying to deal with the problem in his own own strength, trying to scheme and, and get his way out of this. Rather, instead, we see him wisely make some preparations as best he can, and then he lays it all before the Lord, and he gives it to the Lord in prayer. You see, in verse 7 and 8, we see the steps that Jacob takes. Verse 7, it says, Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that was with him, and the flocks and herds and the camels into two bands, and said, If he shall come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. Verse 7 and 8, what we see is Jacob taking steps, taking measures to put himself and his company into the best defensive position. That's what he's doing here. Now he's making preparations in case he is attacked. We see Jacob here divide his company into two groups. And this was the custom of the day. This is how caravans would react if they knew danger was coming. They'd split into, into two, divide into two groups. And so he's following normal practice. He's following the customs of the day. And the idea behind this move was that if Esau's intentions were evil and, the, and he attacked the first group, then the second group would have a chance to get away. And we can guarantee his family was in the second group. He's protecting his family. He's making sure they have time to get away if that is the case. As verse 8 says, and, and said, if Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. And so he's making wise preparations here. This is simply Jacob doing his part to prepare the company for what lay ahead, to put them in a defensive position. Now, as I said before, I don't believe Jacob here is showing a lack of faith in God. I don't believe he's trying to solve the problem on his own. And I think that's clear because straight after this, what does he do? He cries out to God in prayer. You see, he wasn't relying upon this scheme to get him out of the problem, was he? He wasn't relying upon this preparation to get the victory. He was doing all he could and then he was trusting God. He was giving it to the Lord. Morris writes this. <clears throat> he realized they would require God's protection and he fully intended to call on the Lord, but he also realized it was wise as well as in keeping with God's will for him to take what natural precautions were open to him as quickly as possible, after which he could pray, could pray in good faith, knowing that he had done all he could, and the Lord would have to take over the rest of the way. You see, that's what Jacob's doing here. He's just taking natural, wise precautions. He's making preparations, and there's nothing wrong with us doing this. There's nothing wrong with us doing this. God, in, God indeed expects us to act wisely when faced with problems, when, when faced with difficult situations. 
He expects us to prepare wisely for what is ahead. But the key is we must not trust in those preparations. We must not trust in our own schemes or our own strength to save us. Proverbs 21 verse 31 <clears throat> speaks about this idea of preparation. Just turn over there. Proverbs, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> Proverbs 21. Verse 21 just verse 31 says, The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. The horse is prepared against the day of battle. You make preparation, you make ready. But where does safety come from? It comes from the Lord. You see, it's wise to make preparations, but ultimately our trust must be in the Lord. Deliverance, safety only comes from Him. And that's what we see Jacob now do. After making these wise preparations, after done, doing all he could, he comes before the Lord in prayer and calls upon God to save them. Let's read his prayer, verse 9. <clears throat> it says, and Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I, will deal, and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou showed unto thy servants. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, uh, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidst, I will surely do thee good, and make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. We see his prayer. And this is a wonderful example in the word of God of prayer, isn't it? A wonderful example of Jacob taking his problem to the Lord in prayer. And we talked about that this morning. These two messages worked well together. He takes his problem to the Lord in prayer. He comes humbly and he lays his problem at the Lord's feet and he appeals to the mercy of God. And he begins his prayer in verse 9 by reminding the Lord that, it, that he was following God's instructions. He says in verse 9, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which said unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. He starts out by saying, Lord, you told me to do this. Lord, you're the one who told me to return to Canaan. He says, Lord, I'm just following your instructions. I'm here in this situation because I'm doing your will. He basically says in verse 9, Lord, I'm doing your will. I'm obeying you, so Lord, you need to help. That's what he's saying here. And in verse 10 he goes on, <clears throat> excuse me, to acknowledge his unworthiness. In verse 10 he says, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou showed unto thy servants. For, we, for with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Verse 10, he, he acknowledges that he's not worthy. He comes before the Lord and he says, Lord, I don't deserve it, but Lord, help me. He knew he didn't deserve God's help. Indeed, he knew that God had already shown him mercy and taken care of him through all these years and providing for him through these 20 years. He left Canaan with nothing but his staff and he returns with two bands with much. See, Jacob acknowledges that this was all of the Lord and not because he deserved it, it was because God is merciful. And then in verse 11 we see him humbly ask God to show that mercy once more. He says in verse 11, Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, 
lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. As I said, Jacob knew he didn't deserve God's mercy, but he humbly comes and he asks the Lord for help, doesn't he? He says, Lord, I don't deserve it. You've shown me your mercy in the past. You've shown me your truth in the past. Lord, do it once more. Lord, be merciful unto me. And he lays his fear here before the Lord, doesn't he? He says, Lord, I fear my brother. He lays this fear, he lays this problem before the Lord and he basically says to God, he says, I can't deal with it. He says, Lord, I'm afraid I need your help. That's a right prayer, isn't it? He says, Lord, I'm afraid I can't do this. I need your help. And then finally in verse 12, he closes the prayer by calling upon God to keep his word. Verse 12, he says, And thou saidst, I will surely do thee good, and will make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. He concludes his prayer prayer by calling upon the Lord to keep his word. It's always a good thing to pray back to the Lord his word, isn't it? And that's what he does here. He prays back to God his word. He says, God, you promised this. You said this. You said that you would do good to me, that you would make of me a great nation. He says, Lord, keep your word. You see, this was the basis of his faith, wasn't it, as he prayed. The basis of his faith as he humbly prayed to the Lord was God's word, God's promises. You see, Jacob is a wonderful example of a right response in a time of trouble. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Now, one commentator wrote this, times of fear should be times of prayer. Whatever frightens us should drive us to our knees, to our God. You see, beloved, like Jacob, when we are faced with problems, when we're faced with trying situations, situations where we don't know the answer, let's take them to the Lord in prayer. Humbly come before him and lay that problem at his feet, calling upon him to be merciful, knowing that our God cares for us, knowing that our God has the answer. Humbly come and lay claim to his promises knowing that he will and indeed he must keep them. God must keep his promises. He must keep his word. So we can come and we can humbly claim those promises. And truly it is a wonderful comfort to know that our loving, merciful God is ready and he is willing to help. Psalm 56 verse 3 declares, What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And once more, as Lord, we've looked at Jacob's life, we've seen what a wonderful example of how to respond. <clears throat> how to respond in each of these trials, these circumstances that we face. Lord, may you help us all when we are afraid to indeed turn to you. Lord, to humbly fall on our knees and lay that problem before you. And as we heard this, this morning, when we lay that problem before you, you'll give us peace peace that, Lord, we can't understand, that just comes from you. Lord, may you help us to learn the truth that has been uh, presented in both passages this morning. May, Lord, you help us to humbly trust and rely upon you. Bless, Lord, as we close and as we depart from this place. In Jesus' name.